I'm really, really enjoying this study already. We're just into the first chapter. We're not going to even finish the first chapter today. It's a pretty long chapter, the first chapter of John. We're going to look at verses 18 through 28, title of the message, Who Are You? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time in your word. We ask that you'd bless this study, continue to give us further insight and understanding into these wonderful theological truths that John is presenting to us in his gospel. Lord, just uh, plow the soil of our hearts that they might be receptive to anything and everything you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read verses 18 through 28. Another big chunk today. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I confess, I'm not him. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. I would have liked to have gotten this verse 18 last week, in last week, we just ran out of time, but um, right in the middle of this narrative, the Apostle John points out, no one has seen God at any time. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus came. We know first and foremost he came to give his life as a ransom for many, to die on the cross for our sins. But he also came in order to make that connection with people that struggled to believe in a God they couldn't see. Now, those first century believers who were there with Jesus when he walked the earth, they got to see him firsthand. But remember what Jesus told uh, Thomas one week after the resurrection, Thomas missed the first appearing of Jesus on the night of his resurrection. He rose in the morning, sunrise. That evening he appeared to the apostles who were in hiding, but one guy was missing. Two guys were missing, really, because Judas was gone. He hanged himself. He committed suicide. But Thomas wasn't there either, and so when all the other apostles told Thomas that Jesus was risen, he was alive, Thomas. You know that's where we get the phrase, doubting Thomas? How would you like to be famous for that? <laughs> At least it's not as bad as being Judas, right? <laughs> doubting Thomas. So the next week, Jesus appears again. Thomas is there, but he's still refusing to believe. Uh, he had said, I won't believe unless I can, you know, touch the wounds in his hand, the wound in his side, and so forth. So Jesus appears. Thomas is there. Jesus says, go for it. Thomas does it, and then he believes. But he tells Thomas, you have seen and have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen 
and have believed. So, even though you and I, as believers, and I believe the majority of us here this morning are, if there's anyone who's not, I have good news for you. You can leave here a believer today. You don't have to remain a, a non-believer. But we have seen him with our spiritual eyes, right? Because he has revealed himself to us through his word and through the Holy Spirit. And Paul said, we fix our eyes, we meaning believers, on that which is not seen. Having said that, we can understand, can we not, how it could be a struggle for some people to believe in a God they can't see. So Jesus came into this world, and that's John's testimony, both here in his gospel and in the first epistle of John. That's his big opening testimony. We saw with our own eyes. John and the other apostles were firsthand witnesses. And you go to 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul talks about the fact that Jesus, the risen Christ, the resurrected Christ, was seen by over 500 people at one time. So we have powerful testimony, eyewitness testimony, of not only Jesus' existence, his historicity, the fact that he is truly an historical figure, but also that he rose from the dead. But here in, first, in John 1.18, John says, No one has seen God at any time. And so Jesus bridged the gap. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men. A mediator is somebody who comes in to negotiate, right? Between two parties. It could be to settle a dispute. It, would, it could be to close a business deal. But we know what a mediator is, right? Jesus is that mediator between God and man. And then it says, the man, big M, Christ Jesus. So Jesus is our mediator. He bridged the gap. And so even though no one has seen God at any time, we have seen him through his son, Jesus Christ. And again, not a, have we seen him in our hearts and in our minds, as the Holy Spirit makes him known to us, we see him in the words of his Holy Scriptures. In fact, that was how John started this first chapter, that Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word. He is God's message to us. Having said all of that, there is one individual who came very close to seeing God, and that's Moses. Exodus 24, 9 through 11 Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. So hold on to your yarmulkes. Don't freak out here. There's not a contradiction in Scripture. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. So what we have here. This is not a full manifestation of God and all of his glory. If it was, they would have all dropped dead, okay? They saw a limited manifestation of God in the form of a man. Exodus 33, 19 through 20. Then he said, I will make my goodness, so this is God speaking, 
I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So that's why it's so important. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. That's why we study the whole Bible, not just our favorite parts, right? Because we need a balanced approach. And so we see here, on the one hand, they had a limited exposure to a visual experience with God, but it wasn't a complete manifestation. And he says, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And then 1 Timothy 6.16, it says, who alone has immortality, God, dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. So this was a, a limited manifestation to Moses and the elders, the leaders of Israel. And we know Moses had an even closer, more personal, intimate encounter with God, but it still was not a complete viewing because it's not possible for us in our mortal bodies to be completely exposed to a vision, an image of God, we'd be, in, we'd be incinerated. He dwells in unapproachable light. <clears throat> no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who would that be, of course, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, and Jesus himself that he and the, said he and the Father are one. John 14, 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father's in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. The Son, the only begotten Son of the Father, He has declared Him the Father. Jesus has made the Father known to all who have, we talked about this, spiritual eyes to see. And as I stated a few moments ago, Jesus is the earthly manifestation of God. God incarnate. John 14, 8 and 9, Philip one of the twelve, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me, listen to this, has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Pretty clear, isn't it? He has declared the Father, and he says that I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is heavy-duty stuff. This is that deep theology I was telling you about that John gets into. Very important. Now, verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? There's a song by the who. Who are you? Who, who, who? Every time I read this, I think of that. Who, who, who are you? Okay. Sorry. Just an old school rock and roller, that's all. Okay. This is the testimony of John. Not John the Apostle, who's writing the, this gospel, but John the Baptist. It's his test. 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Now, this is the Jews. My Bible's got the big J. They're the leaders of Israel, and they've sent these men to question John. Those guys always got really suspicious when anybody showed up that wasn't part of their group. Have you ever known anybody like that? Some churches are like that. I don't think we're like that. I hope and pray we're not. I, I get a lot of comments and feedback from people that say how welcoming and loving you guys are. But there are some groups that if you're not part of that group, there's a lot of suspicion. Who are you? Who? Who? <laughs> John had been gaining quite a bit of notoriety. Remember, he was kind of a wild dude. You know, clothed in camel's hair eating locusts, he would have fit right in today. I just read about these ladies who got all upset because they found out that they ate some ice cream that was made from bugs. I don't know about you, but that would bug me. But they're trying to get us to eat bugs now. There's actually a lot of stuff in bugs that aren't good for you. Did you know that? Uh, in fact, there's a lot of things that they're giving us today that they tell us are good for us, but they really aren't like a recent pandemic-related uh, inoculation. So, John was gaining quite a bit of notoriety, out there baptizing people in the Jordan River, and they wanted to know who this guy was and what he was up to. Uh, you might be safe in assuming that this is not necessarily a friendly inquiry. I'm sure there was some surface... Uh, cordiality going on but who are you more like who do you think you are you're not authorized verse 20 he confessed and did not deny but confessed I'm not the Christ so he knew right away what they were looking for here do you are you claiming to be the Messiah but he, he knew they were suspicious of who he might claim to be, so he clarifies that right off the bat. I confess, I'm not him. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? See, they knew that the Old Testament prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And what that's actually referring to is the tribulation. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So they said, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. However, Jesus had something a little bit different to say about this. Verse 11 of Matthew 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, why would Jesus say that? Because John was basically the last of the Old Testament prophets or messengers. He was part of the Old Covenant. He was preparing the way of the Lord, but he was part of that old dispensation, if you will. And Jesus goes on to say, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. So he's speaking about that tremendous spiritual warfare that's been going on throughout human history leading up to the coming of Christ. 
Satan tried multiple times, multiple ways to prevent Jesus from ever making it to earth. Remember the slaughter of all the innocents there in Bethlehem by King Herod, hoping to wipe out the Messiah that he didn't know that they had secretly gone to Egypt. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now Jesus didn't literally mean that he was Elijah reincarnated or come down from heaven or whatever, but that he came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, if you go down to verse 10, Matthew 17, verse 10, his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will, will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Remember, they cut off John the Baptist's head. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands predicting his own death on the cross. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus identified John. He, John says, I'm not Elijah, but Jesus identified him as an Elijah, a type of Elijah. And the one and only Elijah, here's where it really gets interesting, and you, you already know this, but I'm going to point it out to you. The real Elijah, the one and only Elijah, did appear to Jesus as well as Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9, 28. It came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. Remember John said, we beheld his glory. This is that manifestation on the Mount of Transfiguration. His robe became white and glistening, and behold, two men talked with him who were... Moses and Elijah, and who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, Jesus' death. They were actually discussing Jesus' impending death, which he was about to accomplish. I love that. About to accomplish. You see, nobody took Jesus' life from him. He said, I lay it down. No one takes it from me. I lay it down and I take it up again. Only God can do that. So I love that, where they put that word accomplish in there. He's going to accomplish his death, because that's what he came to do, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. So here we have John the Baptist, who is a type of Elijah, who came in the spirit of Elijah. Now remember also another interesting aspect of all this. Elijah was only one of two men, other than Jesus, in the Bible, Actually, Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Elijah went up to heaven in a, in a chariot of fire. He never died here on earth. You know who else never died here on earth? Enoch. Okay? And so here's Elijah appearing with Moses, talking with Jesus. And he will appear again before the second coming of Christ. Revelation 11.3. Remember the two witnesses? I will give power to my two witnesses. Again, we believe that they're not named here, but we're pretty sure they're Moses and Elijah, the same two guys that met with Jesus. And they will prophesy 1,260 days. If you take the 360-day lunar Jewish calendar 
it calculates out to exactly three and one half years, one half of the tribulation. They will be witnessing. Clothed in sackcloth. So, Elijah is a very key figure in God's plan. And they wanted to know, are you, if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? No. And then finally, the third question, are you the prophet? What does that even mean? It, it comes from what Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet with a big P. Like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And so because of that verse from Deuteronomy, the Jews believed that a great prophet would also appear at the coming of the Messiah and that possibly they could be one and the same or they could be two separate individuals and so John says nope not him either I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness and Peter in Acts chapter 3 does actually identify Jesus as both the prophet and the Messiah then they said to him who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us what do you say about yourself? Now, I don't think John's being evasive here, or maybe he is. But it would seem these priests and Levites are kind of running out of patience here. You're not the Messiah. You know, you're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. But we can't go home without an answer here. The Jews with the big J... Um, would not be real happy about that if these guys came back without a concrete answer regarding John with a big B. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah chapter 40. I kind of doubt that this answer made them very happy. He still doesn't. He just says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Verse 24 says, Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were the Jewish religious sect most closely aligned with what you and I would consider or should consider sound theology. The Pharisees really... Their beliefs were very much the same or similar to those of Jesus. And we know that Jesus' beliefs are the right ones, right? He wrote the book. He knows how to interpret it and so forth. But the Pharisees did believe in the supernatural. They believed in angels. They believed in miracles. They believed in resurrection even. Unlike the Sadducees, they were like the elite ruling class but they did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection. They only read and believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. They rejected all other scripture. And yet these guys were at the top of the food chain. So the Pharisees, other than being extremely skeptical of Jesus, their beliefs were pretty right on. And they were the ones that sent these representatives to try to get some answers from John. 
And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? By the way, I think we're going to have some extra time again today, so if you have any luck with that, we could show it at the end. If you, It's what? Why? That makes me unhappy. Can you call somebody? Huh. Okay, so anyway, why are you baptizing people if you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, nor the prophet? What in the heck are you doing baptizing people if you're a nobody? Because see, they, like so many today in certain circles, believe if you don't have the right credentials and you don't come from the right group, then you shouldn't be doing anything like this. Baptizing. The fact of the matter is any believer could baptize anyone else. The New Testament teaches the priesthood of the believer. Did you know that? Peter told us, you're a royal priesthood. He was speaking to the whole body of Christ. It would probably be really good if we all thought of ourselves that way on a regular basis, right? It's a higher calling we have in Christ. This whole idea of a laity and a priesthood and all that stuff, that's, that's all man-made stuff. God intended that the pastors, the teachers, the leaders of the church were to be the servants of all. This religious hierarchy is something that man has come up with. But basically what they're saying, what's all this unauthorized baptizing about anyway? Got a whole lot of unauthorized baptizing going around here. So verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. We don't even know you, John. <laughs> I baptize with water. Yeah, we know that. That's why we're here. You've been baptizing all these people. We want to know what's going on. There stands one with a big O among you whom you do not know. And they're thinking, well, it's not like we really know you either. See, Jesus had not yet launched his public ministry. John was preparing the way for the Lord. He was baptizing. It was a baptism of repentance. He was calling people and I've, you've heard me say this before, but it's, it's a known fact that at the time Jesus came on the scene, Israel was not exactly at their peak spiritually. They'd been oppressed for some time. They were under Roman rule. They had corrupt religious leaders, as we know. And it wasn't like there was some big spiritual revival going on in Israel. There was a lot of people who were uh, living a very apostate, apostate type of lifestyle. And so John was calling the people to repentance, reminding them that they were sinners, that they needed forgiveness to prepare their hearts for the ministry of Jesus. So John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but one stands one among you whom you do not know. Referring to Jesus, of course. It is he, verse 27, coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. We talked about this last week. Of course, Jesus is greater than John. 
not only is he greater, but he existed before John. Remember we talked about this last week. Jesus referred to himself as I am. The pre-existence of Jesus. That was the very beginning of this chapter. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All about Jesus. And so he says, he who coming after me, in terms of his public coming out, his revealing to the people as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how John identified him to his disciples. When Jesus finally made his public appearance, John tells his disciples, look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. And so he's telling these guys, the one you're about to meet is everything I am nothing. We see that tremendous humility that John possessed. He, he knew that his time of ministry would be short and that he would be gone. John 3.25 all the way down through 30. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Did you know that John had disciples too? He had followers because he was out there six months ahead of Jesus and young men who were really desiring uh, a spiritual awakening in their own lives were attracted to John. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, Jesus, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. They weren't happy about it. John's followers were not happy about Jesus' emergence, interestingly enough. He answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. Again, John's calling, John's anointing was from, not from men, it was from heaven. Same with Jesus. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. So it's possible some of John's disciples may have still been holding out hope that maybe he's, maybe he's just holding back. Maybe he really is the Messiah. But I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are his bride. But the friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John's joy was simply knowing that the one that he had been sent to proclaim was now on the scene and God was carrying out his plan. He must, and this says it all regarding John's heart, his attitude, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. So John knew that as Jesus emerged, began his public ministry, that his public ministry was going to diminish and ultimately leading to his decapitation. But John's followers, his disciples, were upset that Jesus began baptizing people and gaining followers of his own. Isn't that interesting? And John had to set them straight. Boy, what might have happened if John had been a different person? What if he'd have been on an ego trip, you know? 
What if he'd have been seeking his own glory? Of course, we've not seen anything like that in the church, have we? I can think of a few. People get upset when I name names, so I'll just let your own imagination run wild. One more verse, we're going to get done really early again today, so um, don't get used to it. But I don't know, I, it's like I'm like Samson, I cut my hair, now I can I'm weak. No. Oh boy. Show me the pillars, will you? Oh, oh that was actually Joe Biden, I was saying. <laughs> Excuse me. Okay, uh, <clears throat> Okay, verse 28. Verse 28. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. You might say, where is that? Now, how many of you here have ever been to Israel? A few. So you've probably been to that baptismal site up near Galilee, right below the Sea of Galilee where the Jordan River starts and flows down. In fact, Pastor Chuck Smith, many years ago, donated a big sum of money to help build that whole facility there. There's a really cool gift shop. There are platforms go down to the water. We've baptized people there. Uh, when we went on this trip, I don't know, it's gosh, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, we were there baptizing, and there were people up above watching. Um, it wasn't real busy at that time when we went. But there were people there wanting to be baptized, but they weren't with a tour group or with a pastor. So they just came down and started asking us to baptize them. And Larry, Larry was helping me baptize your husband, Larry Hedrick. Yeah, you, you know him, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we were there. It was so cool. And some of them didn't even speak English. They were from other countries. But the joy of the Lord was upon them. You could sense the presence of the Lord. It was a great experience. But that is not the real sight, okay? The real sight is here. These things were done in Bethabara, also known as Bethany beyond the Jordan. Or the, the Arab word is Al-Magtas. And it's located in the Jordan Valley, about 9 kilometers, which is 1.5 kilometers to a mile. So I hate all that kilometer stuff. I saw an interview with Tucker Carlson where he was talking to these guys from Canada and he was kind of making fun of them for their kilometers and millimeters and all this stuff. But it's nine kilometers, six miles north of the Dead Sea because the Jordan flows all the way down from Galilee down to the Dead Sea, about 90 to 100 miles or so. So this spot, Bethabara or Bethany beyond Jordan, it's six miles north of the Dead Sea. And that's believed with almost certainty to be the spot where John was baptizing, the spot where John baptized Jesus. And the last time I was over there, I got to go there. And if you're driving along the road uh, going north towards Galilee, you'll see a sign for it on the side of the road there. But it's in an area that's kind of mostly Arabic now. But it's okay to go there. You can go there. So anyway, that's where all this was happening the Pharisees sent these guys out to the Jordan to meet with John to find out what he was up to. 
And you know, it just reminds me so much of what happened during the Jesus movement. How many of you wound up going to see the movie, The Jesus Revolution? A few. I, I recommended the movie. Like I told you, I didn't necessarily like the way Pastor Chuck was presented, but overall I thought it was a very good movie, and I wept a few times because it really took me back to those days. But what was happening at that point, and it's, it's the same thing that was happening at the time that John the Baptist and Jesus came on the scene, is that it got to the point where, in many cases, God could no, no longer work within the system. Can you relate to that? You know, I'm talking about the church system, right? Everything was very narrow, cut and dried. You don't color outside the lines and so forth. And so God decided to launch a Jesus movement. And he did it with young people, hippies. Not all hippies, you know, college students. There was all different kinds of young people and even some older people who got on board. Eventually it just touched lives of all ages. But it, it did not happen in the conventional way. All the guys, now Pastor Chuck Smith went to Bible college, but then much of what he learned there he had to set aside in order to do what God called him to do. And then the young men that he raised up, like Greg Laurie, like Mike McIntosh, like Raul Reeves, the list goes on and on. He raised up these men, and basically, one at a time, they would come to Pastor Chuck and say, I think the Lord is telling me to go out and plant a church. And Chuck would say, praise the Lord, God bless you. Go do it. That would have never happened in the system. And none of these guys had been to Bible college. They'd been somewhere better. They'd been under Pastor Chuck's teaching. <laughs> okay, and so that's what God does when it gets to a place where he can no longer work in the system. He has to bypass it. It happened 2,000 years ago through John the Baptist, through Jesus Christ, through the apostles. And that's one of the reasons why the, the leaders in Jerusalem totally rejected Jesus. He didn't go to their seminary. He didn't go to their school. He wasn't taught and trained by them, and it was a good thing. So we'll leave it at that. Let's stand. Father, we lift up each one to you here. You know everyone's heart. You know what's on their minds. Lord, there could be people watching online, too, that are desiring prayer today. So once again, we come before you. Lord, no matter what the question is, you have the answer. No matter what the problem is, you have the fix, you have the cure. So we come before you now. First, we want to lift up health issues, Father. Lord, there are some people in our church who have some fairly serious health issues, uh, cancer and so forth. We lift them up to you. We pray, Lord, for supernatural healing, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon them, that you'd heal them, deliver them, just drive the cancer from their bodies. Lord, and what what other whatever other serious afflictions there might be we thank you lord that nothing is impossible with you nothing is too difficult with for you all things are possible so we do pray for healing lord whether it's for cancer for arthritis for diabetes for heart disease lung disease lord there's just uh many working parts in these bodies we are fearfully and wonderfully made but they do have a shelf life if you will and we know that you've promised us about 70 years, although we find many people do go beyond that. And uh, we're thankful for that when that happens. But we pray for those who are 
uh, in pain, suffering in any capacity, Lord, even if it's just allergies or a cold, you care. Lord, your word tells us that you're aware of it when one sparrow falls to the ground and how much more important we are to you than the birds of the air. Lord, we lift up all those in need of physical healing and we pray that you pour out your grace and your mercy and your healing power upon them. In Jesus' name, we also pray for those with mental and emotional struggles. Lord, we know many that are struggling with um, anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. Lord, and some even have more serious mental issues. But Lord, we know that you were able to heal those things as well. Lord, that you can heal our minds as well as our bodies. So we pray for healing. We pray for deliverance, Lord. If there's anyone that has a, there's a spiritual element. It's not just biological. It's not just chemical, but it's emotional. It's spiritual. We pray for deliverance in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, we pray for uh, relationships, marriages. Lord, we know that that's a constant battlefield that the enemy as we said, he comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, and he especially wants to destroy marriages and families. He is the destroyer, but Lord, you're the healer. You're the one who renews and restores, restores the years the canker worm has eaten. We ask you to heal stressed marriages and broken marriages, Lord, where, whenever and wherever and however there is hope for restoration and reconciliation. We pray that you come in like a flood and heal these marriages that are struggling, these relationships, husband and wife, uh, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, extended family, uh, co-workers, people in the neighborhood. Lord, we know that uh, you've called us as believers to as much as it's possible on our part to be at peace with all men. Help us to do that. We need your help. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. Lord, give us the ability to be peacemakers, to be those who would bring reconciliation. And finally, we pray for um, financial issues, Lord. These are perilous times, but we thank you that you're in control. You're our provider. Help us to always remember that, Lord. When we start to give in to fear and worry, please forgive us and help us to lay those all at the foot of the cross and to trust you with every fiber of our being. And Lord, we pray for those that are in financial difficulty, that you would come in and and provide, give wisdom and guidance on the best way to manage the re resources, however limited they might be, and Lord, for ways to produce more resources. But ultimately, we are to trust you, and you promise to take care of us. We thank you, and we praise you. And Lord, we pray for anyone here today that is uh, either not in relationship with you, or they've drifted away, that you bring them back by your Holy Spirit. There would be re a recommitment, a rededication, and an some cases may be a first-time commitment. We lift them all up to you now, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.